All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to begin, so let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together tonight and to study this amazing book. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside the things that we have been stressed about or worried about or distracted by during the day. We pray that you would open our hearts to what you might desire to speak to us, uh, not only through this book, but more importantly through the scripture that we'll discuss as well. Lord, we pray that you would use this time for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a warm welcome to all of you that are here in person and to all of you that are online or on the podcast. We are delighted to have you. And one of the things that uh, is really encouraging to me is that this book is absolutely so relevant right now. Uh, it, is, it is just uh, amazing to me how relevant it is. And I will be very happy if I could get my cursor to come back here. It seems to have disappeared on me. Okay, so here's some music. I think I'm going to stump everybody this time. If anyone knows what this is, I'll actually give you money. So, any guesses on what that was? Yes, it's Handel. That's very good. Yeah, you might actually know what it is. It is. So, that is from... I'm very impressed that you got that far. That deserves extra credit. <laughs> so that was an aria that it's actually, it's a lovely aria um, that's from an opera by Handel that is called Tamerlano. And Tamerlano is uh, the Italian for uh, a name that figures in tonight's chapter, Tamburlaine. Uh, whom Christopher Marlowe wrote a play about, and uh, Tamburlaine or Tamerlano was one of the great sadistic, psychopathic uh, terrors of the ancient world. So uh, he was uh, a Mongol chieftain in the 1400s. And so this opera is all about him. 
But I have to say, I think it is somewhat of an unfortunate opera because for whatever reason, in writing about the psychopathic, sadistic, big, mean, horrible protagonist in the opera, for whatever reason, Handel decided to write that for countertenor. <laughs> and so you have this big, beefy, Rambo, mean kind of guy who sings soprano. <laughs> and it just, it's very disconcerting. I actually saw this opera and I had to leave at intermission. I just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do it. So, but we'll, we'll get to Tamburlaine later tonight. So let's begin by saying our scripture verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And it really, it's quite remarkable how applicable this verse is to what goes on in the great divorce. Because basically, as the story unfolds, you're going to see more and more people who are determined that they are not really interested in what the truth is. They are interested in their experience, and they're going to hold on to what they want, regardless of what the consequences are. And it's very much like what St. Paul is talking about here. So... A couple of things for those of you who are new. There are several ways to approach this class. Uh, you can be on the beach, which means you just appear when you feel like it or not appear. Um, you can sleep. You can lie on the floor. Uh, you can make your grocery list, whatever you want to do, and you just pick up what you pick up through osmosis. You don't read the book. That's great. If that's all you want to do, I am delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel, where if something gets your attention, you can go deep, you can look at the handouts, you can read the things that I send out in the email. Uh, but then when it's not so interesting anymore, you can go back to lying on the beach sipping your drink. Or if you are wired like I am and you are a nerd, uh, you can scuba dive and you can look at every little thing, you can follow all of the little leads that I send out. You can read the long academic handouts that will come occasionally. Um, you can listen to the music and look at the words and look at the translation of Tom Orlano into English and all of that, and it will be a glory. But I realize not everyone wants to do that, so more power to you. Wherever you are, I'm delighted to have you. Uh, but I would like to encourage you, if you're not on the email list, if you're here in person and you're not on that list, please sign up. Um, if you are listening from somewhere else, please Google St. Philip's Charleston and send me a little note and we'll get you added to the email list. Because all you have to put in Google is St. Philip's Charleston and it will come up. So 
once you do that, you'll see the church website and you can shoot an email and we'll get you added to the list. Um, a couple of things about reading this book. This is one of those books that if you read the way I read, you're gonna be in trouble. Because the way that I like to read is I like to get about a three hour block of time where I'm gonna be completely not distracted with a cup of really good tea and I'm just gonna plow through it. Please don't do that with this book because you will get through it and you'll be like, what was that? Uh, it is so much better if you take it a little bit at a time, which is why we're doing a chapter a week. And also it is another one of Lewis's books that works very well to read out loud. So keep that in mind. And then again, I want to announce mere Anglicanism. Uh, most of y'all have probably heard me announce this before, but this is the big C.S. Lewis conference. It will probably be the C.S. Lewis conference of the year, I would think, where we have an amazing lineup of scholars from Oxford coming, an amazing lineup of scholars from Wheaton College who are coming. We will have two glorious worship services uh, it is going to be amazing. And I've talked to a couple of people who said, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in that, and I'm interested in C.S. Lewis, but I'm afraid this is going to be over my head when you get all of these Ph.D., Doctor of Divinity people up there. It's going to be a bunch of wonky talking heads. Um, that is not the way these people are. And I, I want to encourage you, if you're thinking about the conference, think about reading this book. This is a book by Alistair McGrath, who is one of the keynote speakers, one of the most brilliant theologians in the world, and a huge expert on Lewis. But this book is called If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis. And it is a great example of how McGrath, with his towering intellect and deep faith, can write and speak in a way that is so winsome for those of us who are ordinary mortals. So uh, I would encourage you, even if you're not interested in mere Anglicanism, read this book anyway, because it's really good. But this conference is one of those things that I really truly believe that if you go, it will change your life. So please do consider it carefully. Also, we will have a lot of volunteer opportunities available for those of you who are here in Charleston. So. Um, the music we talked about already, Tom Rolano, and then this picture up here, as I said last week, that is Lewis's freshman year of college when everybody had left Oxford to go to World War I. And I want to just run through again about why The Great Divorce is such a great book to study right now. The first thing is it has a huge emphasis on eternal life. And we live in a culture that says there's no such thing as eternal life. This is it. Better enjoy it while you got it. Uh, but this story that Lewis tells talks about how dreary and awful hell is and the glorious beauty of heaven in such a way that it will fire your heart with longing for that. The second thing that is just throughout this book is dealing with the consequences of narcissism and pride. Narcissism and pride are just rife in our culture today. I'm sorry to say every one of us in this room, including me, we are all infected with this. We all think we're the most important person in the room. And the problem with that is it can't be true. Sorry if I'm 
upsetting anyone's world here. Uh, but narcissism and pride are everywhere, and this book shows when you pursue and live that way how it ends. Uh, another thing that is so important about this book is that it talks about the concept of truth with a capital T. And we live in a culture where truth is under attack. Some of you will remember a couple of years ago, Stephen Colbert coined the word truthiness. Um, we just have such a bizarre view of truth in our culture today that is at odds with the history of that idea in the human race. And Lewis shows here what happens when you hold on to your own truth, what you think is your truth, speaking your truth in the face of what absolute truth is and how that does not end well. Another thing that is interesting is that we live in a culture that is obsessed with our rights. I deserve this, I'm entitled to this, don't you dare stop me from what I deserve to get. And Lewis deals with this too, and the whole idea of servanthood and self-sacrifice, which is the thread that runs so beautifully through Jesus' life, that's not a thread you hear much about in our culture. But you see it beautifully depicted here. Another thing that Lewis does brilliantly in this book is to show that there really are things where it's either this or that, that it, there's not just this gray mush in the middle where all roads go to the same place, that that is not the way life works. And last but not least, the way Lewis portrays things in this book is a brilliant rebuttal of the idea of works righteousness, that if somehow we're good enough, we can earn our way to and that our uh, goodness is what makes it possible for us to be in heaven. And Lewis just absolutely dismantles that uh, with some of the greatest lines in all of his writing. So, uh, if you are catching up, and there is no shame if you've not read any word of this book. No shame at all. But just in case there's anyone that has not read anything at all, I would commend to you, even if you think you're on the beach, try to read the preface. It's really short. It doesn't have very many big words. It's easy, um, but it, it sets the theme for the whole book. And he talks about the fact that you can't have it all. That is not a popular message in our culture. He talks about the fact that choices matter. The choices that you make open doors and closed doors that will have consequences for the rest of your life. He also says that repentance is hugely important. And in a culture that says we just need to affirm whatever anyone is doing in any way, we just need to affirm that because that's what love is, Lewis says a resounding no to that and that repenting and getting back on the right road is the way to human flourishing. And then lastly, and this is one of the things that he illustrates so beautifully in this book, is that anything that we leave behind will pale in the face of what God has for us. Our imaginations are too impoverished. And as we said last week, that great quotation where Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We fool around with things like sex and drink and all these kinds of pleasures and think that that is what life is about. And he said, it is, we are like children in a slum playing with mud pies because we cannot imagine 
what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seashore. And part of what Lewis tries to do in this book is to show us the glory of what God has for us. So chapter one that we did last week, which is even shorter than the preface, um, chapter one, bad choices have lasting consequences. And if that sounds like something your grandmother would have said, that's because it is. And Lewis is telling us that bad choices throughout the revelation of scripture all the way from the beginning right through the end, scripture is very clear that bad choices have bad consequences. And there's this beautiful contrast in Galatians 5 that we talked about last week between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And one of those lists, uh, the sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I'm not sure what was left out there, but um, that's a pretty apt description of what you see on TV every night uh, because that's a reflection of what's going on in our culture. And yet he contrasts that and says the fruit of the Spirit, those who know Jesus Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So much beauty there. And then the second point in chapter one is that the children of darkness disdain the children of light. And one of the things that sometimes uh, I think as Christians we get sort of upset about is we expect people in our culture to warmly receive us as Christians. And then we're shocked when that doesn't happen or when people are hostile to us. And the thing about that is the scriptures predict that that is the way things are going to be. And you might remember in the first chapter, the scene where the, the bus driver who's driving or flying or whatever he might be doing, um, this exotic, multicolored, beautiful, glowing bus that's descending out of the heavens into this dreary town. The driver himself is glowing, and light is coming from him, and he doesn't say anything, and all it says all of the crowd immediately let out a growl. Uh, they are just immediately hostile to him, and he hasn't done anything, but he is glowing with light that comes from dwelling in the presence of God where he's come from. So, uh, and we talked last week also about some of Lewis's likely inspiration. One is this idea of the, ref this is so hard to say, refrigerium, uh, which comes from Prudentius. Remember the guy who wrote Of the Father's Love Begotten uh, way, way back. Um, and also Earth has many a noble city, not as well known, but Prudentius was someone who was living in the uh, 300s, 400s, deeply Christian, and he had some ideas where he thought about, well, what might it be like if the people in hell could get a taste of what heaven's like? And I think he was probably inspired by Jesus's story of Abraham and Lazarus, where Lazarus is up in heaven in the bosom of Abraham, 
with everything good, and the guy that we usually refer to as Davies, the rich man, is in hell, um, not doing so well, but he can see up there. He can see how beautiful it is and begs that Lazarus would come bring him some water. And so this, this is one of the ideas that came to Lewis's mind. What might happen if people that were in hell got a chance to go visit heaven? Um, might they like to stay there? And we'll see what happens with that. Um, Jeremy Taylor, who is a 17th century Anglican priest, also built on this idea, and it's sort of the, it's a fantasy, it's not strong theology, but it's just an idea to help you get your imagination going. And we talked last week also about a story by E.M. Forster called The Celestial Omnibus, which I'm sure factored into Lewis's uh, idea of this flying bus that goes to heaven, because that's what Forster's writing about. And in your email uh, this week, there was a copy of that short story that I would commend to you, because it's, it's such a parable for where we are in our culture right now, because there's this boy who sees this beat-up old sign that says, To Heaven, at this beat-up old bus stop, and he is filled with a sense of wonder, and he believes that maybe there really is a bus to go to heaven. And he goes home, and his parents are just horrible to him, and make fun of him and tell him how stupid and idiotic he is and that modern people don't believe things like this and, you know, on and on and on. But he still has this kernel of faith and he goes and he looks at it again and he says that he sees this faded part that says only at sunset and sunrise. And so he gets up and he goes and there's a bus waiting there. And he gets on this bus and they literally tread on a rainbow into heaven. And of course, he gets back, no one believes him at all. But it is uh, a story that has a lot of resonance with the great divorce. So there's a little handout about that tonight as well. So chapter two, chapter two starts off with one of the great characters. And we talked about last week how part of what is so intriguing about this book is what Lewis leaves out. He leaves out so much stuff. So in chapter one, you don't know where you are. You don't know what the narrator's name is. You don't know anything. And it makes you wonder, it piques your curiosity. And he's gonna continue to do that through this story. And so you might remember at the end of last week, we had uh, the narrator who will soon be revealed to be Lewis himself finally making his way to the back of the bus, thinking he's gonna have peace and quiet back there, away from all these nasty, quarrelsome people that are in the front. And just as he sits down, he sees this tousle-headed young man making a beeline right to him. And the, the young man says, I can tell you and I are alike, which of course they've never spoken to each other. Lewis is sort of offended by that. And then it transpires that the guy is a writer and he pulls out this giant sheaf of manuscripts that he proposes to then read aloud to Lewis. And Lewis thinks he's being punished for something terrible when that happens. So chapter two opens with the two of them sitting side by side and this tousle-headed young man, probably in his early 20s, telling the narrator his life story. And it is very interesting because if you read um, any of the more pejorative analyses of Generation Z, uh, you will notice that there is a very strong 
resonance here with what we think of as sort of the, the worst stereotypes about Generation Z, the worst stereotypes about social justice warriors, all of those kinds of things, all these stereotypes that we sometimes buy into without really thinking about the fact that these are all individuals that are made in the image of God that we're called to love. But you'll see that there are some similarities here. So this tousle-headed poet sits down and he launches into this narrative and guess what he's talking about? Himself. Oh. Hmm. Narcissism, anyone? So he talks, he starts talking and of course the first problem is he was not appreciated by his parents. They just set out to be mean to him and to misunderstand him. And then they sent him to not one, not two, not three, not four, but five schools, none of which he liked, none of which appreciated his unique qualities where he was never able to fit in. And he went all the way through college not being able to understand why he just wasn't appreciated and people didn't want to seek him out and want to publish his poetry right away. And then he finally realized who the real villain was, and that was capitalism. Capitalism was responsible for everything that was wrong with the world, and particularly everything that was wrong with his life. And that is why his true genius was never recognized, and then he became a communist. But unfortunately, the communists were not interested in him either. So that didn't work out very well. Meanwhile, he has been unable to find a job, and so his father has been paying for him to live and eat and all of that, but he says his father is just awful. He's this bourgeois, bougie, anyone? Um, bourgeois, stern father who never gave him enough allowance to live on, and then to make things worse, he finally thought he had found true love and then this girl, after he started falling in love with her, started talking about monogamy and commitment and other bourgeois prejudices. Well, poor Lewis, the narrator, is like enduring listening to just this litany of all this complaining. But the interesting thing is a lot of Lewis scholars have said, boy, that sure does sound a lot like Lewis before his conversion. Because Lewis went to five schools, most of which he was miserable at and did not fit in. He always wanted more than anything else to be a poet and to be appreciated for his poetry. And he wrote reams of poetry when he was young, a lot of which is really not very good, and was not appreciated for it. Um, and so there, there are some similarities here. But the tousle-headed poet finally ends the story with this really poignant thing and says, after all of this had happened, what can I do but throw myself under a train? I mean, it's just horrible. Throwing away everything. So, and then right as we get that revelation, all of a sudden, these violent quarrels, remember all these people are just quarreling all the time. It's just sort of the background noise. All of a sudden, the, the noise level goes up and it gets violent, and there's a stampede on the bus, and knives are drawn, gunshots are fired, but Lewis, the narrator, says somehow it just seemed kind of normal. And then 
in the midst of all of that melee, um, the seating is rearranged a little bit, and Lewis um, is able to move away from the tousle-headed poet and ends up with the intelligent-looking man. Now, it's probably not an accident that Lewis says this man is intelligent-looking, as opposed to actually intelligent. So, but we learn a lot because this man is telling Lewis some things about where they've come from. And he says this gray town that as they go up in the bus, they can see it covers everything. It's like when you go up in an airplane from Charleston, you can see the city, but then you start seeing all of the green areas and the rivers. Here, it is just endless gray town as far as the eye can see. And he says the reason for that is because of perpetual quarreling, that anytime people live next to each other, suddenly they are not getting their rights, and so they decide to just move on. And that because of that, the time and distance of this gray town are extreme, and that the bus stop where they all gathered was actually thousands of miles from the civic center where they all got dropped off when they came from Earth. And the passengers living near the bus stop took centuries to get to this bus stop. So what he's telling us is that time works in a really weird way in this great town. And there are well-known villains of the past who are sort of the celebs um, of this great town. But the problem is they are the most quarrelsome, and so they've moved so far away that nobody can ever even get there anymore. And the only one that's left that's accessible um, if you go on a long journey, you can still see Napoleon in all his glory in his French Empire house. And uh, we're told that the villains that have moved far away include Tamburlaine or Tamburlano, um, the psychopathic, sadistic Mongol leader, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Henry V. And we can have a lot of fun trying to figure out why Lewis chose these particular people. but. Because I'm determined we're only going to do one chapter each week um, so we can get through the book, I'm not going to go there tonight. But these are all people that have reputations about different aspects of their lives that might maybe make them candidates to be where they are. So the people that see Napoleon see that all he does is just pace endlessly. And as he's pacing, he's muttering, it was Sewell's fault, it was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. And it's a litany that just goes on over and over and over and over again that his defeat, his exile, his death are all the fault of all of these other mean, nasty people who are conspiring against him. So one of the things that is interesting that we also learn about this gray town is that no one there has any needs. Now, this sounds great. It's kind of like if you imagine Amazon.com and you can just imagine anything that you put in that search bar, anything you might like, you just imagine it and poop, it's right there. And that's the way it is. Whatever you want, it's right there. But the problem is, it's not very good quality. The things are not solid. So you can imagine a house. If you've always wanted to live in a big, white-columned mansion, you can imagine that as your house in the great town, and you can move right in. But the problem is, it's not solid. So when it rains, everything inside gets soaked. So there are some problems with 
this. So this guy, the intelligent looking man, has hit on this idea. He's decided that what he wants to do is to go on this bus trip to bring back something real. Because he thinks if he's got something real that's just not this imaginary see-through stuff, that people will want that. And because of capitalism and scarcity, people will want to come together. And one of the advantages of that is that if people come together, they'll have enough population to support a police force. Because he is worried that they need a police force. And the narrator is like, what do you need a police force for? And then all of a sudden, the conversation drops to a whisper. And he says that they get this feeling of safety even in these transparent houses they live in. And then the guy whispers that eventually it's going to get dark. And this clearly inspires the guy with terror. And as soon as he starts talking about darkness, the other people on the bus freak out and say, stop talking about that, stop talking about that, stop talking about that. But the one extra clue we get is that when it's dark, in the most ominous sense, that is when they appear. They appear. We just had Halloween. Use your imagination. So, and immediately into this comes the fat, clean-shaven, cultured man. And he jumps right into this conversation, and he says, there is no evidence whatsoever that this twilight is actually going to turn to night, and that this half-light is actually the promise of a new dawn, of a spiritual city where man will be free, free from all matter, free from all those things that bound you on earth, free to do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, with whomever you want to do it, and it's going to be great. It is going to be the greatest thing, the greatest advance that has ever happened in the history of man. And then just as he is pontificating about all this, and just wait till you find out who that character is later on, uh, as he's pontificating, all of a sudden, the bus, which remember is flying through the air while all of this is going on, the bus encounters light. And it goes from gray to a pearly gray, and it gets lighter and lighter and lighter, and suddenly there's this brilliant blue that's all around them. They look out the windows, and it's just this beautiful, bright blue that's so bright that it hurts their eyes. And the narrator lets down the window on the bus, and this delicious, cool, fresh air comes rushing in over all of them. And all of them clamor and say, shut that window, shut that window, shut the window now. And then when he stands up to shut the window, he turns and looks at the people on the bus. And now the light is revealing what those people look like. And what he sees is that it reveals faces that are gaunt and distorted and faded that seems like they might even be destroyed or just disappear as the light gets stronger. And then this chapter ends with this short little sentence, and still the light grew. 
So Lewis is playing with us, but in the best way, by only giving us a little bit of what's going on and trying to make us more and more curious. So there are a couple of themes in this chapter that I think are hugely important, and they are going to play as we go through this book. One of the things that's amazing about this book is that it is constructed so that what follows each chapter, it builds on what we've seen. So the first theme that I think is important is the importance of perspective. And perspective, if you think about art, is something that's hugely important. Uh, if you think about the way that you're choosing to look at something, it can change dramatically the way the object appears to you. So one of the quotations about this, we were now so high that all below us had become featureless, but fields, rivers, or mountains I did not see, and I got the impression that the gray town still filled the whole field of vision. It's only when they get up above in the bus that Lewis, the narrator, can see this huge extent of what this town is like. More on that later. And then when you get to that next part in the um, whispering, it will be dark presently, he mouthed. You mean the evening is really going to turn into a night in the end, he nodded. What's that got to do with it, said I. Well, no one wants to be out of doors when that happens. And then the other guy cuts in. There's not a shred of evidence that this twilight is ever going to turn into a night. There's been a revolution of opinion on that in educated circles, i.e. you dunce. All the nightmare fantasies of our ancestors are being swept away. What we now see in the subdued and delicate half-light is the promise of the dawn, the slow turning of a whole nation toward the light. But we look on the spiritual city, for which with all its faults it is spiritual, as a nursery in which the creative functions of man, now freed from the clogs of matter, begin to try their wings. So this guy is very sort of poetic sounding. But the fact of the matter is, these two people are looking at exactly the same circumstances. One of them is looking at this half-light, this twilight, and saying, dark is coming. And when the dark comes, they, they are going to come out after you, and it's not going to end well. And this other guy looking at exactly the same thing is saying, oh, no, 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 you stupid idiot. Of course, no one actually thinks that anymore. This is the promise of a new dawn, and everything is going to be so wonderful and glorious because we will be free and we will be able to do whatever and imagine whatever, and you just have this antiquated, crazy view. Now, part of the reason this is so important is that this is exactly where we are in our culture right now. People look at where we are in our culture, and some people think it's the end of the world, and some people think it's the beginning of a new day. And they're looking at the same kinds of things, but they're going to completely opposite uh, conclusions about them. The other thing is this whole idea of perspective, uh, of what it looks like when you get above a situation and look down over it versus when you're just looking at a little bit. It's sort of the classic old thing of the forest and the trees. 
If you're focused just on looking at trees, you will not be aware of a forest. And trees are beautiful, but forests are too. And to understand what the tree is, you have to understand the forest that it is part of. So this whole notion of perspective is going to be really, really important as we move through this book. And it relates directly to what we see in a lot of the passages in the New Testament that are telling us to think about the way that we perceive things. What is the perspective that we're going to choose to have? And in that great chapter, Romans 12, uh, which uh, some theologians say the gospel is in just that one chapter of Romans 12, it's all there. But in verse two, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think many of us have heard that verse before, but it is important to think about what that actually means. Because we live in a world that is trying to conform us, that is trying to force us into a mold, trying to force us into a way of thinking. And the problem with it is that if we are conformed to the world, our minds will not be renewed. And then we will be unable to understand what is good and acceptable and perfect. We will not be able to do that because we will have cut off the only thing that can renew our minds, which is the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that I think Lewis is trying to get us to think about as we go through this book, you'll see this even more, what are the pressures that are trying to make you conform? Because it is really easy to not realize when you're being pushed and prodded and forced into a mold. The second verse, uh, this is another one that we could do a whole sermon on that I will not, uh, but in Colossians, we are told, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now this is one of the most radical verses in all of scripture in our culture today, because most of us think that we have no choice what we think about. We just have this stream of stuff coming at us all the time, and that is what we have to think about. But Paul is saying, no, that is not the way it is for the children of God, that we can choose to set our minds on things above. We can choose to focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful. We can choose to load our minds and our hearts with scripture. We can choose to invest in times of worship and fellowship. We can choose to not turn on the news every night and hear all of the stuff coming at us. We have the ability to choose to set our minds on things that are above. And the problem is that when we set our minds on things on earth, that often leads us to worry and anxiety and it steals our joy. But the fact of the matter is that if you are a child of God, your citizenship is in a different kingdom. You are certainly a citizen of this world, but your ultimate citizenship and your true identity is in a different kingdom. And leaning into that identity is really important. Um, the second theme that you see in this chapter is the danger of blaming others for our misfortunes. Now, I know no one in this room has ever blamed someone else for something that went wrong in your life. Never ever, right? Or not. 
One of the funny things about blame is it goes right back to the Garden of Eden. And we have the story of Adam and Eve and the snake and the apple. And when they are confronted by God, it is really, if it weren't so tragic, it's quite funny. Because you see uh, Eve saying, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And Adam says, the woman you gave me, God, she gave it to me and I ate. So it's actually all God's fault that it all happens that way. Uh, but this, this blame game is just, we don't even see it anymore because it's so everywhere. Um, and it's in all of our hearts as well. It's not those people out there, it's all of us in here too, where we wanna blame other people or blame circumstances uh, in a way that is tremendously unhealthy. And I love the way Lewis says this. This is just such great writing when he's talking about the tousle-headed poet. He appeared to be a singularly ill-used man. His parents had never appreciated him, and none of the five schools at which he'd been educated seemed to have made any provision for a talent and temperament such as his. To make matters worse, he had been exactly the sort of boy in whose case the examination system works out with the maximum unfairness and absurdity. It was not until he reached the university that he began to recognize that all these injustices did not come by chance, but were the inevitable results of capitalism, which did not merely enslave the workers, it also vitiated taste and vulgarized intellect. Hence our educational system, and hence the lack of recognition for new genius. That sounds uncomfortably familiar uh, to a lot of what maybe we've said or people we know have said, uh, it is the human condition. And then of course we have Napoleon recounting all of these different people um, who led to his downfall. It was all their fault. And the interesting thing, this is, this is one of these scripture verses in Philippians 2, that if you ever get a hold of just even the littlest bit of this verse, it will transform your life. And what Paul says there is do everything without complaining or arguing. Now we could just stop right there. How many of y'all have complained today? All right, this says do everything, not most things or church things or family things. It says do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless. Oh, look at that, blameless. Blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation hmm, in which you shine as lights in the world as you hold forth the word of life. Now, the interesting thing about this is you can make a pretty good argument from this verse and some other supporting text in Scripture that one of the very best ways, instead of trying to come up with a new master plan of evangelism, is that if Christians just stopped complaining and arguing uh, as they held out the word of life, that we would shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and people would be drawn to us. But it's so easy to complain. It's so easy to argue. But think about if you know people who are relentlessly positive and the joy that it is, particularly to be around Christian people who are relentlessly positive that 
are determined that they are not going to complain. They're the kind of people that you want to be around. There's a deep truth here. And then, of course, this brilliant one from the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And I want you to just visualize that for a minute, because Jesus is, I think, actually being a little bit funny here, but because it's so serious, we sort of miss that. But I just want you to imagine that, let's just say our friend Cassandra here has a speck in her eye. And Cassandra is just so lovely and sweet to me that I want to help her out by taking that speck out. But imagine that I've got this giant log in my eye. The closer I get to her to try to take the speck out, I'm going to start clobbering her over the head with this log. We're going to both be black and blue as a result of this. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that we need to deal with our own stuff before we start worrying about other people's stuff. And that is, uh, if there was ever a lesson for our culture, that is certainly one of them. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Paul says again in Romans 12, that great chapter, for by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Ouch. Many of you, if you, well, probably not many. Some of you are as old as I am. And when I was a child, the book that everyone was brought up on was The Little Engine That Could. The Little Engine That Could. And basically, The Little Engine That Could is this tiny little train, but every little mountain, all it has to do is say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. The problem with that is it's a lie. It's a lie. You can't do everything because you are, I might really want to be an Olympic decathlon person. I could want that, I could visualize it, I could read about it, I could talk about it to all of you, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen, not, not built that way. So it is important for us to learn to think with sober judgment. Thirdly, and again, this is so relevant in our culture, Constant quarrelsome speech easily leads to casual violence. Another way of saying this is words matter. When our public discourse and our private discourse gets filled with vitriolic and hatred, hatred-filled language, um, we set ourselves up because we demean people that are made in the image of God. And the more that we do that, Violence becomes not unthinkable in the way that it would be if we refused to go there. And there's this uh, line that's kind of matter of fact, which makes it all the more chilling. One of the quarrels, which were perpetually simmering in the bus, had boiled over, and for a moment there was a stampede. Knives were drawn, pistols were fired, but it all seemed strangely innocuous, and when it was over, I found myself unharmed. And we are in a culture more and more that is inured to violence, it is inured to quarrelsome language, um, where this whole idea of servanthood, self-sacrificial, encouraging speech, kindness, politeness, civility, uh, is something that needs to be reclaimed. Uh, and there's this great scripture passage from James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. And then again, back to Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That is a word for us. Uh, there's a lot of irreverent babble that goes on. And one of the best things we can do is to try to, in those kinds of conversations, shift the conversation. And if you can't shift the conversation, shift yourself. Because that kind of thing, it does spread like gangrene. It will, it will infect your mind, and it is not something that draws you toward God. And then fourthly, light reveals truth, whether showing beauty or exposing evil. And I just love this passage. It began to grow light in the bus. The grayness outside the windows turned from mud color to mother of pearl, then to faintest blue, then to a bright blueness that stung the eyes. We seemed to be floating in a pure vacancy. There were no lands, no sun, no stars in sight, only the radiant abyss. The bus was full of light, but now look what happens when he turns from looking at all the beauty that's revealed outside, and he turns and looks at what the light is showing him about his other passengers. It was cruel light. I shrank from the faces and forms by which I was surrounded. They were all fixed faces, full not of possibilities, but of impossibilities, some gaunt, some bloated, some glaring with idiotic ferocity, some drowned beyond recovery and dreams, but all in one way or another distorted and faded. One had a feeling that they might fall to pieces at any moment if the light grew much stronger. And of course, light is one of those images that runs all through the scriptures from the very beginning of God separating the day and night and creating light and darkness. And then in that glorious prologue to the Gospel of John, where we hear the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not quenched it or understood it. Uh, this whole idea of the light of the Gospel, the light of Jesus Christ is throughout scripture. But right after uh, this glorious prologue, when we get to chapter 3 and Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, who's come to Jesus by night, we hear these words. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, again, it speaks so much to where we are in our culture but it's a reminder that the light has come into the world. As Christians, we know that light, but we need to choose to dwell in that light and not to dwell in the darkness and not to participate in the works of darkness. And then from 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are having a bad day, I would encourage you to reflect on that verse. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's so much in this book. We're even in this short chapter, we're just skimming the surface. Uh, but I want to encourage you, one of the things that we haven't gotten yet, we have not yet, the bus has not landed in its destination. And the destination, let's just say, I'm not want to totally give everything away, but the destination is not going to be the gray town. And there are going to be some wondrous things to look forward to when we see what we encounter when the bus lands. So let me close just with this quotation uh, that I think there's so much deep truth here. The whole idea that whatever we leave behind on earth, everything that we've sought in whatever misguided way, that God will straighten out everything that is crooked, everything that is perverse, everything that is evil, and will channel all of the desires with which he made us in his image into a true and good and beautiful place where we will have more waiting for us than we ever could have imagined. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the deep truth that is in this book. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to look in the mirror, not just at ourselves, but at our culture and in the way that we live in our culture. Lord, you have called us the children of light. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to live into that identity and that as we journey on this bus ride uh, with Lewis, that you would help us to understand more and more the wonder of your love. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.